Today we come to the grand finale of this great little book, Zephaniah. Zephaniah is sometimes ignored because a lot of what you find in Zephaniah is found in the other prophetic books, but not the conclusion to the book, not this conclusion. This is unique. It is gloriously unique to Zephaniah, and it is one of the most encouraging passages in the whole Bible. This passage meshes very well with some of my goals for our congregation. One of my goals for you as Trinity Presbyterian Church is that you would live as secure and confident Christians. I want you confident in the love that God has for you because the healthy Christian life is a life full of assurance, assurance of God's love. I want you assured of your salvation. I want you assured of God's delight in you. The normal Christian life should be a life filled with joy. Joy because we know God enjoys us. Sometimes I think we get the idea that the really godly Christian will be gloomy all the time. That somehow it's really more pious to doubt your faith, to doubt your salvation, to feel guilty all the time, to be constantly uh, introspective and raking yourself over the coals. That's the godly life, according to some people. I don't think so. I think the most mature and most effective Christians are those who experience continually the joy of their salvation. They live with the most confidence and courage, and they end up doing the most for the kingdom. They're even the ones who can be most honest in confessing their, their sins and shortcomings. When you know you're loved by God, and when you know God rejoices in you, and when God rejoices over you, when you know that, you can live with freedom and strength. And that's what Zephaniah aims to do in this passage, is to give the people of God confidence and courage and strength. Yes, he has announced a coming judgment. Now he describes God's coming salvation. He wants God's people to be assured of God's love even as hard times come. He wants them to trust in the coming warrior king, whom he describes here. He wants them to know the joy that God has in them. So I want to pick up where I left off last week with verse 14. The prophet says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Last week, I pointed out that one of the features of the faithful church is festivity. Among other things, one mark that should be very evident in a faithful church is festivity. The kind of church that changes the world is a festive church. A church full of joy, a church that sings and shouts. What Zephaniah does in the rest of this book, from verse 14 to the end, is he gives us reasons why we should sing and shout with joy. He commands us to sing, and then he gives us the reasons. The command is sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. We're to sing and rejoice and exult with joy because God has made us his daughter. That's what daughter Zion means. We are the Lord's daughter. Now, we might want to say daughter-in-law because we are the bride of his son. But the language of daughter here suggests the closeness and depth of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. He loves us the way a good father loves his daughter. He'll protect us. It means he'll provide for us. He will guide us. That's a reason to sing. 
That's why we're singing today in this service, because we are the daughter of God and the bride of his son. Zephaniah also says we are to shout. The word shouting can indicate loud singing, certainly, or an actual shout. All throughout the Old Testament, shouting is associated with warfare. So if you go to Numbers chapter 10, Israel was commanded to enter battle with the blast of a trumpet and a mighty shout. Israel enters into war with a loud shout. In Joshua 6, this same word for loud shout is used for the battle of Jericho, where God told the people to march around the city and blow their trumpets and then shout out loudly. And the walls of the city fell in and God gave his people the victory. I had somebody once ask me, somebody who was visiting our church, why do you go to the front of the, to, to, to the entrance of the sanctuary and shout for the call to worship? Why all this shouting? And I explained, it's because worship is warfare. And I am summoning us to battle. The shout is a battle cry. It's a call to arms. We begin worship with a shout because it's a call to war. The church sings and shouts her way to victory. The liturgy is both warfare and a celebration of victory in our warfare. We celebrate an already accomplished victory with our singing and our shouting. But we also extend that victory progressively with our singing and our shouting in joy before the Lord. And that's really what we see next in this passage in verse 15. It's victory. The Lord has taken away judgments against you and has cleared away your enemies. Taken away judgments. Much of this book, as we've seen, much of this book has been taken up with God's legal case against Judah and against the nations. He will judge them for their sins. He's made judgments against them. He has charged them with various sins. He says he will judge them for their sins. But now the prophet says those who belong to the Lord, those who have cried out to the Lord, those who sing before the Lord with joy, those who belong to the Lord by faith will have those judgments against them taken away. The Lord could press charges against us. Instead, he drops the charges. We are cleared of all charges. That means we're forgiven. We've been set free from all liability and penalty due to us because of our sin. We are guilty. We have done terrible things. God could charge us and punish us for those things. Instead, God says he's going to clear us. He's going to drop the charges. The judgments against us will be taken away. That's forgiveness, and forgiveness is certainly worth singing about. We're to sing and shout to the Lord who forgives our sins, who drops the charges. Not only that, Zephaniah says he turns back our enemy. He chases our enemy away. What enemy does he turn back? Well, for the original audience, they might have thought of the Assyrians or the Babylonians sitting there on their doorstep ready to attack. But ultimately, we know those enemies were only types and shadows of the real enemy we face. The enemy ultimately is Satan. What is Zephaniah saying here? God will turn back Satan. Satan will be put to flight. Satan is on the run. And all of this happens, 
these judgments against us are taken away. Our ultimate enemy is defeated. Why? Because Zephaniah says, the king of Israel is in our midst. Now, who is this king of Israel? The only earthly king they had in that day was Josiah, and he was a good king, but obviously this is pointing to a much greater king. Oh yes, Josiah's wise reforms may have delayed the coming judgment of exile, but it still happened after his death. Josiah died and went away. He was not in their midst forever. Zephaniah says here, this king will be in their midst. This is a future coming king, and he will be in their midst in a special and permanent way. We're going to see more about this king momentarily because he becomes the theme of the passage. The day is coming when Jerusalem will have nothing to fear anymore. The king will protect them. Zephaniah promises them this. They're living in fear in that moment, fear of exile, fear of judgment, fear of pagan invaders. Zephaniah says the day is coming when Jerusalem will have nothing to fear anymore. And so Zephaniah encourages them. He says, do not let your hands grow weak. Fear. And weak hands are symptoms of what we might call depression or despair or hopelessness. You usually do work with your hands. You need strong hands to do work. You fight using your hands. A person who has no energy or will to act or drive to act will let his hands hang limp. He lacks the heart and the will to do anything. Fear has overwhelmed him. He's paralyzed with fear. You can see it in his hands. But Zephaniah says you don't have to be that way. He says to the people of God, banish all fear. Energize your hands and get to work. Let your countenance and your conduct reflect all that the Lord has promised. Throw off this despair. Throw off this discouragement. Fear not, for the king is coming. Verse 15 says this king is in your midst or will be in your midst. Verse 17, he now says the Lord your God is in your midst. Put those two together, and what do you have? How can you have one who is king? That's obviously referring to a human king. And Lord, we sang about this in Bozrah this morning, this one who comes from afar, is he man or is he God? Well, he is both. We've asked the same question in Zephaniah chapter 3. This king, obviously a descendant of David, the promised king, and this Lord, this divine one, the king will be in your midst. The Lord will be in your midst. Put those two together. What do you have? It's the incarnation. The king is the Lord. The coming king, the greater Josiah, the greater David, will be one with the Lord. He will be human and divine, promised king and eternal Lord. And in him, the core promise of the covenant, that God will be our God and will be in our midst. He will be one with his people. That core covenant promise will come to pass. He will be in the midst of his people. Verse 17 goes on, the mighty one, still referring to this king, the mighty one will save you. This is clearly messianic. This is a prophecy of Jesus. Some say there is no messianic theology in Zephaniah, no expectation of a redeemer, no Christology, no promise of a, of a coming Messiah in Zephaniah. That's simply not true. Here it is. Here's a mighty one God promises to send, a mighty one who will save. The Hebrew word for mighty one here is Gabor. It can be translated as a great hero or a strong warrior 
or a mighty champion. This king who's coming will be a mighty champion and a great hero for his people. He'll be a strong warrior who will fight their battle. He'll be the one who drives their enemies away. This same term is used of other types of Christ, like Boaz in the book of Ruth, or prophecies of Christ like Isaiah chapter 9. Think of what was said of Jesus at his birth in Matthew chapter 1. It's an echo of this. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be mighty to save. That's what the angel says. That's what Zephaniah has promised. Zephaniah is talking about Jesus. And then the prophet continues, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will calm you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. There is so much encouragement here. Take that middle line. He will calm us with his love or quiet us with his love. He will give us rest in his love. I think that's referring to a time when the battle is over and the war is won. It's what it's looking ahead to. We will be calmed by his love. Whatever anxiety or fear we have will be taken away. But then get this. Zephaniah says, God rejoices over you. God delights in you. God sings over you. Our God is a singing God and he sings over you. Nothing could be more confidence building or reassuring than this to know that God takes great joy and delight in us. We've been commanded to sing. Here we see that God sings as well. Indeed, we sing to God because he sings to us. We rejoice in God because he rejoices in us. It's one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture. What does it mean for God to sing? This passage certainly answers the question, how does God feel about you? You ever ask that question, how does God feel about me? You know, you might feel pitiful and pathetic. You might feel unlovable. And Zephaniah comes and tells us, God rejoices over you. In fact, God sings over you. You might look at yourself and think, wow, how could God even tolerate me? And Zephaniah says, when God looks at you, he sings for joy. What makes God sing? You do. God has a song just for you. He has a song with your name in it. God sings over you with loud rejoicing. You may feel nobody could ever find you beautiful or lovable. You might think God should just scream at you in disgust. But Zephaniah says he sings over you with joy. God does not merely tolerate you. God rejoices in you. He does not merely love you. He likes you. His love for you runs this deep. His love for you is that powerful. He loves you and sings over you right now just the way you are. That's how great and and, and glorious his mercy and his grace towards you are. God is so full of grace and mercy, he sings over us, he rejoices in us. And he wants us to know this fact, he wants you to enjoy this fact. God wants you to enjoy the fact that you are enjoyed by him. That's what this is really about. God knows your sins, he knows your faults and your failures, he knows your sins and your faults and your failures even better than you know them. And still, Zephaniah says, he sings over you a song of love and joy. 
Some of us, I think, need to check our perception of God, and especially God's emotional life. Some Christians seem to think the only emotion God ever has towards us is anger. The only emotion God ever has is anger. Now, I don't deny that God gets angry. God does get angry. But God's emotional life is predominantly one full of joy, and God takes joy in you. God derives joy from each of you. God sings and shouts with joy over who you are. God is passionate about you. God has an infinitely intense love for you, for each one of you. Don't worry too much what others might think of you. Yes, that has its place, but don't worry too much what others might think of you or say about you. Know that God delights in you. And that matters far more than anyone else's opinion. God's love for you, God's joy for you, God's song over you. That's what counts most. God has created you and redeemed you for his own pleasure, for his own joy, because he takes great delight in you. God is a joyous God. God is a singer. God is a singing God. Sometimes wonder what God's voice sounds like. I guess in the resurrection and the new creation, we'll get to hear it for ourselves. But God is a singing God, and you are the theme of his song. Each one of you, you are one of the ones God sings about. Love like this isn't just for fairy tales. Zephaniah is telling us this love is real. This unfathomable love is yours in the gospel. It's a love that can't just be spoken. It can't be confined to mere words. God has to sing it. It's that glorious. I think there are several New Testament passages that help us grasp this love that God has for us. Uh, One of my favorites is Romans 5. In verse 5, Paul says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. God has poured out his love into our hearts by giving us his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the eternal, unbreakable love of God poured out in our hearts. You know, it's interesting. There's one other place where that verb poured out is used in Scripture. It's at the Last Supper when Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room and he takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for you. How much does God love you? The blood of Jesus was poured out for you. The love of God and the Holy Spirit is poured into you. That's God's love for you. God's love is poured out upon us and poured into us. It is a lavish and extravagant love. God floods our hearts with his love. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. God has given you the Holy Spirit so you can know and experience God's love. We read this morning from Ephesians chapter 3. This is another one of those glorious passages about God's love for us. Paul there really enters into prayer, and his prayer is that we would know the glorious riches of God and be strengthened with his might through the Spirit, that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we might be able to comprehend the width, length, depth, and height 
of God's love and that we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's just an amazing prayer. Paul's praying that we would love that, that we would understand that love which cannot be understood. That surpasses understanding. How can you understand a love that surpasses understanding? Yet that's what Paul prays for. Paul has telling us here, there's a love that words cannot contain. Even Paul's inspired words can't contain this love. It's a love that surpasses our ability to grasp it. And yet Paul wants us to grasp it. Paul wants us to have a full experience of this love. Paul is praying that we would have an experiential enlargement of this love, an experiential enlargement of the love that is already ours. So that this love may be ever more real to us, that it might be ever more influential in our lives. Paul's praying that we might experience God's love in every dimension, in every direction. That includes certainly intellectually understanding this love as best we can, but especially it means experiencing this love in our daily lives. What Paul's praying for here is that we would feel loved by God, that we would feel the infinite intensity of love God has for us. Indeed, you could say here Paul is praying that all obstacles to enjoying God's love would be removed. And I would say that if you don't feel loved in this way, you need to defy your feelings and keep clinging to promises like Zephaniah 3 and Ephesians 3 and other passages because God really does love you this way. In 1 John 4, John says God's perfect love casts out fear. God wants us to know this love, this perfect love he has for us. John says there's a perfect love with which God has loved us. And this is a love that casts out fear. So you don't have to live with any fear of condemnation. No fear, no fear of condemnation. We're thinking of Isaiah 62. This is a great Old Testament passage about this love. Very similar to Zephaniah. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall God Rejoice over you. I think this is talking about Christ singing a love song over his bride. This is Christ the groom singing a song of love over his bride. That's what Zephaniah is about. It's really a wedding song. It's a song about love that the groom has for the bride. Now understand, being loved by God this way does not depend upon your ability to feel it all the time. We certainly won't feel God's love in our lives all the time in just this way. But we should know that God wants us to feel this love. You know, every good parent, every good mother, every good father wants his or her children to feel love. If you're a good parent, you love your children, and then you want your children to feel that love, to know that love. And so it is with God here. I would say the seed of feeling this love is in our faith. And I would say that we can do things to cultivate this feeling of being loved by God. One of the things we can do is seek to be as obedient as possible. In John 15, Jesus says, as my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So the love that the Father has for the Son, Jesus has that same love for us. And then Jesus says, now abide in my love. He says, if you obey my commands, you will abide in my love and your joy 
may be complete. See, what I think Jesus is indicating here is that sin, disobedience, can numb your soul and deaden your spiritual senses so you don't experience the full love and joy that God has for you. Jesus is saying obedience opens you up to feeling this love and this joy more and more. You need to know God delights in you. God loves you. God delights in you so fully, so deeply. He sings over you a love song. Can you hear him? Can you hear that song? Can you hear God singing over you with joy? That's what Zephaniah wanted for the people of God. That's what God wants for all of us. Now, obviously, after verse 17, the rest of Zephaniah 3 has to be anticlimactic. How can you top that? Zephaniah hits his high point in verse 17, and then he winds down. But these last few verses are important. They really serve as a good summary of the book as a whole. These final verses in Zephaniah really summarize what the whole book has been about and what's going to happen. I think these final verses look ahead to the exile. Judgment is going to come. But then also the promised return from exile when God will restore his people and bring them back. So the judgment that Zephaniah announced earlier is going to come to pass. But God also is going to restore his people on the other side of exile. And so what you have in these final verses are a number of I wills. I wills where God is making commitments and promises to sustain his people through a hard time. In fact, it's interesting. There are 21 I wills in the whole book of Zephaniah. Uh, 21 commitments God makes, you could say. Most of those have to do with judgment. But here at the end of the book... They have to do with redemption. What will God do? God says he will gather those who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. What is this about? It's saying those who have mourned over God's just judgment will be restored to festivity in due time. Judgment's going to come. They're going to mourn over it, but then God will restore their festivity. The whole book of Zephaniah really can be viewed as an emotional movement from mourning over sin and judgment to singing with joy over God's salvation. Verse 19, God says he will deal with their oppressors, their enemies. Again, he will give them victory. It might look like defeat for a while, but God will give them victory. God had promised Abraham, your descendants will possess the gates of their enemies. Here that promise is reiterated. He will save the lame. Another promise in verse 19. Think of Jesus' miracles, healing the lame. God's grace always flows to the broken and hurting. To broken and hurting people who acknowledge their need. God says, I will change your shame to praise. God's people will be put to shame when they're punished for their sin. But God says he will restore them and take their shame away. Indeed, he will make them famous in all the earth. Again, echoing God's promise to Abraham. God's people will be scattered in the judgment of exile. But then verse 20 goes on to say, At that time, I will bring you in and gather you together and make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. 
What is this talking about? Well, there was a return from exile. The Israelites were sent away into exile. They did return in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read about that later in the Old Testament. But of course, the real return from exile happens in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. That's what this ultimately points to. That's when the shame of the curse is taken away for good. That's when God's people are restored and brought home through Jesus' death and resurrection, when Jesus experiences exile and return for us. God says he will make them renowned through all the earth. Remember the Tower of Babel and the call of Abraham in Genesis 11 and 12 really have been in the background throughout this chapter. What is God saying here? God says he will make his people famous in all the earth. He will make their name great. That was God's promise to Abraham. What do we see here? God is a God of promise making and promise keeping. He's reiterating the promise he made so long ago to Abraham. And he's saying through Zephaniah, I will still make good on my word. What is this all about? Zephaniah presents to us a just and holy God. A God who does judge sin. A God who will judge the nations for their sin against him. But Zephaniah also presents us with a gracious and compassionate God. A God who promises redemption and restoration. A God who rejoices in his people. A God who delights in you and me. A God who sings over his people a joyous song. God loves you. And God loves to love you. And he wants you to know that. And he wants you to enjoy being loved by him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.